and we've been watching this for for three years or so move from the kind of bottom of the internet as it were on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture, and with a particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode three, How Do We Argue and Persuade? Um, And who are we? I'm Alan Finlayson. I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia. I'm Rob Topinka. I teach and research media and cultural studies at Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher. I research digital culture at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we going to be doing this week? We are going to be thinking about political rhetoric. So why rhetoric? So... One of the things people will think of when they think about politics online is, I'm guessing, people arguing, often, usually quite unpleasantly. That's an important aspect of it, and we will talk about that. But I think we also want to think more broadly about how people argue, the ways they try to persuade other people to share their politics. That's rhetoric. We want to know how it's changed by digital forms of communication. So rhetoric is not just about, you know, being eloquent or being able to have an elevated diction when you're talking with someone. It's about appealing to someone when you're making an argument, uh, appealing to your audience and changing how you make your appeals, how you talk, how you write, uh, depending on the context you're in. So if you try to convince someone on Twitter, you'll do it differently than you would in the pub or differently than you would if you were talking with your family versus your friends and so on. So that's rhetoric, changing how you communicate based on the context you're in. And because we've got these new kinds of communication, these new kinds of media, these new platforms like you're talking about, new kinds of rhetoric perhaps are emerging. And that's one of the things we've been trying uh, to understand. But we started by asking Sophie to ask our students who they find convincing online. Yeah, and this one really surprised me. I was expecting much more to hear big national organisations and names. And that wasn't what happened at all. I do have some friends online who inspire me politically with how they sort of politically engage. They seem to be quite polished about their public image and about the kind of like tweets they engage with and about their tone. They seem to manage to avoid getting too emotional or into sort of like debates with people where there isn't going to be a productive conversation. So that's the kind of thing that I look for in the people I follow politically. I don't just want to see loads of like arguing and complaining. There's this one guy that I quite like. It's almost a comedian, I suppose you would describe him as. He's called Jonathan Pye and he pretends to be like a, like he's giving a, a news report and then in between the like the Vox Pops and stuff, he'll just talk really frankly and in 
in quite an angry way about the the situation of politics. And it's really interesting because he doesn't, you know, lean left or right. He just kind of, well, I'd say he has maybe a slight left bias, but like he's eager to criticise both people on the left and on the right, which is something you don't see too often nowadays. And it's also quite funny. Uh, I find him quite interesting, yeah. I think there's a, um, she works for The Independent now. She used to work for The Huffington Post, but this lady called um, Nadine White, her feeds are quite good because she's a reporter as well, ensures that the information that she gets is correct. Like she's good at uh, taking a, a middle ground of what she's saying. I think because she works for the Independent as well, it probably is quite a left pa- left paper, but she, yeah, she's quite good at being balanced in what she says. In terms of American conservatism, people like Ben Shapiro are very good in terms of cultivating a, fo- a following and distributing it as, as is on the left, guys, guys on um, Twitch, a streaming service. And one of them is uh, called Hassanabi, and both of them sort of break down the news, and mostly they're political pundits. But in terms of sort of gaining a following and spreading their message clearly, I think that 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 I suppose would define them as some of the best people at politics. Some things I've read online that have been effective or memorable, I feel like are when I log on to Twitter, say, and I'm in that sort of mood to learn something, and I will look at the longer tweets, I will look at the threads in times of political turbulence. I've learned a new perspective through a thread on Twitter, usually by somebody who is an expert in that field. So they could be a journalist or a pundit or somebody in a related field to the issue. Them sharing their insight in a way that they have to on Twitter, condense it, put it quite clearly in sort of like step-by-step tweets in a thread, I found actually have has taught me a lot. Um, I was talking about this comedian earlier, this Australian guy, and he's quite good because he has loads of content. He has podcasts, he has like little sketches, he does comedy. Um, I think that's a nice way of like getting people in. And a lot of the time the comedy that has, it's not political, it's just funny content which then engages people who perhaps wouldn't turn up if it was just um, for the sake of political commentary. I'd follow people that I know that are going to be reliable so I do tend to follow people that are linked to papers or um, like not but not tabloid papers so your broadsheets sort of papers I try and follow those sort of reporters because what they write has to be correct. So I like Stephen Colbert, Colbert so I watch that every morning. He's doing the news, but he's satirising it. So I also like satire. So I think that's good because it's not just doing the news straight form. He's also bringing in jokes. A lot of the time, and I know this isn't the best way to inform yourself, but memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy because they'll just take it and they'll sort of make a joke out of it. And, and then you just see how ridiculous it might be. Wow, that's really interesting what they said there. Sophie, you're right that it's interesting that none of them, although some of them mentioned, you know, I try to follow someone who's connected to maybe a broadsheet. Nobody mentioned, you know, I read the Financial Times or, or, or the Telegraph or I watch BBC News at six. They're all following individuals. And, and that reminds me of what Becca Lewis talked about uh, earlier, uh, this, this micro-celebrity sort of parasocial relationship people develop with particular individuals, right? They, they follow Jonathan Pye, Nadine White, Ben Shapiro, all very different people with very, very different perspectives, but they're able to develop this kind of relationship of, of trust, what a rhetoric scholar might call ethos, with their audience, right? They rely on them because they trust this person, they trust their perspective, they trust them to tell them 
how it really is, not any kind of institution. And none of them mentioned any politicians. And that may be an artifact of the question, what do you look at online? But none of them was particularly inspired by any recognisable politician who was actively going out and trying to make the case for this or that kind of politics, which is really quite, quite striking, I think. Right, and between the lines there, at least implicitly, is the idea that it could be anyone, it could be you. You have access to Twitter, say, it could be you who has the political take that everyone agrees with and shares or that wins the argument for your side. So this kind of notion of uh, digital platforms is maybe more democratic as having opportunities to build your own audience is there too, I feel. But they were definitely looking for people who were entertaining, which is perhaps fair enough, but again, reinforces a point we've made before on this podcast, that there's a blurring of the lines between entertainment, celebrity um, and political culture. But also one thing caught my ear was somebody said something about reading, uh, watching someone who'll break down the news for you or explain things to you clearly on a kind of Twitter thread. I think that's really important because what a lot of people are looking for is just some something or someone who can explain what is going on? It's confusing out there, it's particularly confusing when ideologies are breaking down and we haven't got a way of getting into and thinking about politics. So we want someone who can say, look, I'll just stop and explain it to you. And as we'll find out, that's just a really important thing that's going on within our politics right now. One of the things that's really important to think about with, with digital politics and digital rhetoric is that although there is this blurring and overlapping and, and sort of convergence happening, it's not all one kind of thing, right? Different sites, different platforms work very differently, and they set up different kinds of relationships between people uh, and between people they're communicating with, right? So uh, you have to think about how platforms create different sorts of rhetorical situations, different kinds of, of contexts, right? So you know, on Twitter, you have your followers, so you're communicating with followers. You communicate with followers very differently than you would with your friends on Facebook, right? On, on Twitter, you're, you're limited to 240 characters. So that's going to shape the kind of messages you send out. They're going to be more punchy. Uh, they're going to be more tending towards one-liners. On Facebook, you're able to be a bit more discursive, to go on a bit longer, uh, to speak from your, your personal perspective, because at least in principle, the people you're talking to on Facebook are your friends. Uh, many of uh, the students we were listening to talked about Reddit, which again is very different, right? On Reddit, you're anonymous. Or, or semi-anonymous, you're linked to your username, but people don't know who you are. So your ideas matter a bit more, at least in theory, right? The information you're bringing to the table matters a bit more. Uh, so the kind of platform you're on really changes the way you communicate. It really changes the way you try to persuade your audience. But it also changes the experiences of the people that you're trying to persuade. So I think it's very important to think about what it's like from the users or the audience's point of view. You know, in the old days, you might be at a meeting surrounded by lots of other people cheering or applauding or booing or whatever it might be. You might be in your living room with your family watching a party political broadcast or somebody talking on the news. With digital communication, probably, not always, but probably you're on your own. Probably you feel like you're in control. You're not just being given what the person wants to say or what the broadcast networks decided to put on. You're making choices about how to flow through that digital space, choosing who you want to follow or form some kind of relationship with. And you might be becoming part of a wider community linked to that person. You might be taking part in comment discussions on YouTube or quite often you'll find there are Reddit threads specifically to discuss the YouTube output of some particular political YouTuber. So you can be part of a wider community of some kind. Scholars use this term, Rob used it a moment ago, parasocial relationships, to talk about the way in which we can feel that we have some kind of human relationship with people whom we've never met. And that used to be big celebrities, film stars and so forth. We might feel we kind of know them personally because we see them so much, we hear them talking about their lives, whatever it might be. Well, 
one of the things that's definitely going on online is the development of much, much more parasocial relationships of, of people with the online celebrities they follow, but also with other people that they haven't met in real life, but that they're having an ongoing set of exchanges and communications with through different kinds of social media platform. And one of the things that comes out of that, at least this is what we found in the research, is that very often the people who are setting themselves up as people who can explain politics to you are doing what Rob was talking about earlier, creating an ethos, a character that you can rely on, trust, believe in. So they set themselves up as people who know what's going on, who can explain to you what's really happening behind the headlines in the news. Often we found people talking about secrets, using the rhetoric of secrets. Here's things that are hidden from you. Here's things that not everyone knows. I'm going to let you know what they don't want you to know. I'm going to give you some insight that will help you benefit you, help you understand politics, the world, yourself better. So that's a very particular kind of rhetoric. All political speakers have to have some kind of character, some kind of ethos, which might be, I'm the strong person who can protect you in wartime. I'm the decent-minded, competent politician who can help pass the policies and make the changes that you need to see in the country. But here what we've got is people who are setting themselves up as having some special knowledge, some special insight. That's a really key feature of online political rhetoric. So could we talk about a concept like ethos in relation to charisma? Is it, is it a kind of synonym or are the two different? Yeah, so charisma is kind of a term people think about in relation to politics. Charismatic politicians who move us and perhaps enrapture us in different kinds of ways. And I think we could use charisma to think about this aspect of rhetoric and ethos. But it's important to think that to understand that in politics, charisma isn't a quality of special individuals. We often talk about it that way, right? Someone's got something special inside them that makes them charismatic. But charisma is a relationship between people. It's a way we relate to someone who we think is making us feel better, that we're attracted by, we want to spend time with them, we feel good when they're in their company. And online, that charisma takes the form of people who have some kind of special knowledge and insight the, the value of which is kind of proven by the way they act and behave, but also by the way it makes us feel when we hear it and understand it. You know, in sort of classically charismatic people are like religious people who uh, seem holy or have some special confidence or some special calm. And we want a piece of that by being near them. We want to share in that kind of way in which they see it, in those qualities that they seem to have. We want to identify them. We want to know what they know. We want to know their insights. We want their blessing. We want their favour. And in those kinds of like religious contexts, you know, the charismatic figure is going to keep us attached by saying how much they care about us, how much they want us to learn their special teachings, how much they want us to be close to them and share their special insights. Well, you can see versions of that online. I don't want to push the analogy too far with kind of religions and religious cults. But what you do see all over online spaces, not just political ones, whether it's parenting advice platforms, um, you see people who, who emerge over a time as the ones who've got some special insight to pass on to other people in that community, whether it's Mumsnet or film students explaining movies on YouTube, someone saying, OK, I'm going to explain to you how this film works. I can explain to you this aspect of parenting. But it's also a part of the kind of politics that we've been studying as part of our research, the kinds of wider reactionary or conservative kind of politics, whether it's someone like the psychologist and self-help writer Jordan Peterson, very successful on YouTube, talking to people about how they can make their lives better, take control of their lives, be freer and more responsible, or whether it's in the so-called manosphere, people giving advice to lonely men online how to pick up women, whether it's 
political entrepreneurs selling a new way of thinking about politics or someone selling nutritional supplements. The internet is full of people saying, come and listen to me. I've got some special knowledge, some special insight. If you listen to me, if you subscribe to my channel, I'll give you that special knowledge. You'll have something which other people don't have. So a, a big part of what's happening here as well is people being able to present themselves as being oppositional, part of the counterculture, sort of capturing that energy the alt-right captured of the, the countercultural, uh, radical, edgy, transgressive vanguard. And part of this is possible because the official culture of journalism and politics has its own ethos, its own uh, rhetorical style, right? Uh, a newscaster has to be uh, taken seriously by presenting uh, him or herself as uh, rational, unbiased, uh, reserved in a certain kind of way, practicing a certain kind of decorum. Uh, and this creates a, a rhetorical opportunity for people who want to present themselves as, as a counter to that, right? They break the rules. They speak out of turn. Uh, they say offensive things to get a rise out of their audience uh, and to attract an audience looking for something that feels transgressive or edgy or radical. So that's part of the appeal of a lot of populists, a lot of uh, far-right radicals, right? They break the rules. They don't care about the rules. They're breaking the rules of official discourse. And this gives them the uh, appearance of being an outsider, of having a kind of radical critique. Right. And by consuming this content, by engaging with these dangerous, dicey ideas, you too are able to see yourself as transgressive, free thinking outside of a blinkered mainstream. So Bharath Ganesh had a good point about that. We met Bharath at the start of our project when he was working at the Oxford Internet Institute. He combines kind of quantitative data methods with qualitative interpretive methods to try and make sense of intolerance online. He now works in Holland at a place I always find it hard to pronounce, Kroningen. Kroningen. Here's what he said. So I think in sort of to understand, right, like, is this about, for example, you go on social media to find a kind of sense of solidarity. I think that's that, that's totally part of the puzzle. Um, but I don't think that the sense of alienation is the is is the dominant thing. I think it's actually more like the experience of going on social media and transgressing kind of social norms um, and challenging these kinds of ideologies. Right. So, so, for example, right nowadays, you see kind of sort of from right wing and far right groups, this kind of constant attack on anything that sounds a little bit like it might be woke. Right. And I think that the sort of I think that the practice of engaging with sort of animosity towards like wokeness or claims for equality or social justice warriors, as they kind of frame it as a sort of demon in their heads. Um, I think that it's the act of actually going and doing like engaging in that kind of animosity online that is the key kind of effective driver here. Um, and I think it's kind of this idea about transgressing these norms about civility that provides a lot of the, uh, the if you like, the effective fuel for, for, for this kind of activity. So I think there's like a, a priming aspect that's going on that's mixed up between social media and broadcast and all these other kinds of media. Um, that creates a kind of priming effect. It develops this sort of disposition or this sense of feeling under attack. Um, and then I think the effective fuel of sort of getting together in, in sort of um, what feels like a collective kind of attack or engagement of, or, or practice of animosity towards uh, specific kinds of outgroups, whether that's, you know, left wing people, communists or uh, people of color or whatever. So Bharath is describing this situation we've been talking about, where you have these online communities who are united by a sense that they are bravely transgressing norms 
Uh, and when they receive pushback or criticism, this confirms a sense that others are trying to police them or shut them down uh, and can uh, create a kind of sense of connection and solidarity. Um, and I think we need to think about this in relation to another really important feature of uh, digital technologies and digital platforms, because digital platforms remove a lot of the contextual cues that normally help us to make sense of people, of what they're saying, of our kind of social context and situations, uh, to judge how much authority someone has, where, what kind of angle they might be coming from. Um, in uh, real life, in, in meat space, it, that might be a matter of how someone's dressed. Maybe they're wearing a uniform, maybe they're dressed more formally or casually. Um, there's a pretty good chance someone who's wearing a white coat and is sitting in a doctor's surgery is a doctor. Um, and that can help us orient ourselves and to calibrate our assumptions and expectations. Of course, people can exploit that. That's what con men do. Um, but it can also be really helpful in resolving ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, in a lecture, for example, it's normally pretty clear who's the lecturer and who's the student. We all know about this um, genre. We all know where we stand in this situation and we can play our roles confidently. But online, all of that disappears. You don't always have a clear sense of where a message or where an idea might be coming from of who's actually pushing it. Um, and scholars talk about this uh, using the term context collapse. So one classic symptom of context collapse is the way we can't always tell online whether someone is serious or joking, whether they're being sarcastic um, or whether they're an extremist um, or just literally deranged. Uh, Whitney Phillips talks about this in relation to the term Pose Law. She's a um, scholar who works on digital media and rhetoric at Syracuse University in New York State, uh, and she's written a lot about this aspect of online culture. Pose Law is an internet axiom that's been around since the early mid-2000s, and it started on a creationist forum, a poster by the name of Poe, P-O-E, hence the name of the axiom. He was noting that it was impossible to tell the difference between a sincere young earth creationist and a parody of a young earth creationist. And, and so what it essentially points to is, is you can't tell if someone's being serious or joking. And more broadly, it's not just a question of whether people are joking or not. You just can't tell what someone means because you don't always have the kinds of signals that you would have in embodied interactions. But then also, you know, people are not necessarily posting under their actual names or their sort of obscuring signals that would help you better understand whether or not they mean what they're saying. Impose Law works in tandem with context collapse, the fact that online um, audiences are really difficult to predict, that you can share something over here on one side of the network and it can end up in all kinds of unexpected strange places. And the more it moves away from its original context, the more Pose Law enacts um, a kind of ambivalence around what, what messages are meant to mean or could mean. So you just don't know. If you don't know where something started and you don't know whose hands it's passed through and what it's done as it's gone, it's really difficult to tell how even to respond to something. It might look like one thing and maybe it is that, but maybe it's something else or maybe it's been different things to different people. And so within the realm of political communication, pose law and context collapse, which are forwarded and, and sort of made even more intense by these various technological 
technological affordances on social platforms that maximize spread. It, it, everything is streamlined. It's really easy to make something move from here to there and everywhere all at once with a click of a button. So all these, these factors online that make things move around so easily also makes it impossible to know what something means. So if you're talking about political communication, normally, ideally, you would be able to situate an utterance and figure out, first of all, who said it and what they were trying to mean. And you could analyze it in those ways and sort of identify what the consequences of, of the utterance is. So I think Whitney captures really well a certain kind of experience of being online, not quite sure who said what, where it came from, what it means, how to interpret it, but also the way in which phrases, slogans, terms, sentences get snatched from one context and presented to us in another as meaning this or meaning that. So this is a real kind of opportunity for people who want to set themselves up as being able to tell you what's really going on, what everything means, and to put their particular spin on it. And that links back to what we were saying earlier about how these kind of charismatic figures emerge and say, look, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make it clear to you. I'll let you know what's going on. But it's also an opportunity for people who want to hide what they really mean. We spoke to Matthew Felburn, director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, and he made a point about metonymy. That's a figure of speech in which you make something particular, a singular thing, stand for the whole of something. If you're being an anti-Semite and you want to still be in kind of acceptable company and not amongst kind of neo-Nazi anti-Semites who are proud of using, you know, for example, slurs and the kind of, you know, the, the language of the gutter, you say it's the George Soros types. Okay? And that is your classic metonymy. So there you make an individual figure or an individual name stand for the whole of something. And some people will get that and take the full anti-Semitic reference. Some might not, but it might also be a way of drawing some people into that, that bigger picture. But Matthew also made the point about inversion, which he explained in this way. Call your enemies the things that you're afraid of. So if people from the left, let's say you're concerned about quote unquote cancel culture or something like that, you call your enemies fascists and Nazis. And there's a great... I think very refeeling line that, again, it simultaneously legitimizes your cause by saying, I'm not a fascist or not Nazi by implication. But of course you're stigmatizing the other guys by saying they're fascist and Nazis. The other one that I think is more recent, if I may, is this idea of lulls and this, this quasi irony. So I'm gonna read you just a very brief uh, snippet, if I may. It's, it, it uses some pretty ugly language, I should warn up front, but it's by, well, no surprise, because it's by Andrew Anglin of the Daily Stormer. And he came up with style guidelines for writers. And I think that this is a really important thing about the irony giving a patina of distance. And so he says, under lulls, the tone should be light. Most people are not comfortable with material that comes across as vitriolic, raging, non-ironic hatred. The unindoctrinated should not be able to tell if we are joking or not. There should be also a conscious awareness of mocking stereotypes of hateful racists. I usually think of this as self-deprecating humor. I am a racist making fun of stereotype of racists, but I don't take myself super seriously. This is obviously a ploy and I actually do want to gas kikes but that's neither here nor there. So the idea is that this lack of context online provides an opportunity for political operators to kind of reorder and redefine political things and to create context for themselves in which kind of one set of voices that might appear as authoritative in other situations can be made to appear as charlatans while also making use of codes of conduct in online spaces to make themselves look like mainstream, normal, new kinds of trustworthy voices. 
There's another aspect of context collapse fits with that. The way online bits of ideas and arguments get broken up and moved around and you can reinsert them into your own arguments. That's really useful if you want to do what Matthew was talking about, inversion. You want to define your enemies in a particular sort of a way. You take a fragment of their words out of context, you hold it up to people with your interpretation and make it look like you're exposing them. Whitney Phillips was really illuminating about this. One of the primary focal points is just this broad conversation about decontextualization and what it does to political discourse and the the trouble and the, the I don't even want to say mischief, that's too minimal, but the, the devastating consequences of being able to just rip something from over here and put it over there and spin it to your own whatever ends you want to accomplish. It's very easy to, to take a sentence and spin it into an argument that can support any, any number of problematic uh, arguments. And one of the, so it's not just Poe's Law and context collapse that are an enormous part of that, but it's also the affordances of, of digital spaces more broadly, of digital media more broadly. There's modifiability, uh, which obviously you're, you're able to sort of modify content as you see fit. You can Photoshop it, you can do all kinds of things with it. There's also modularity, which is really important because in analog context, in order to engage with or alter a text, you had to destroy it in the process. People spliced film together. They did all kinds of sort of strange things that are comparable to what people do with remixing now, but you would have to ruin it in order to do it. And so that limited the iterations of something that you could create here. You don't have that problem. You can take bits and pieces of a, of a speech or anything and, and spin that off into however many directions that you want. You also have archivability, the ability to sort of put things somewhere else so that you can find them for later, and then accessibility, you can access them when you want to. All of those things contribute to this dynamic of being able to pick and choose little bits and pieces here and there to further your own argument or your own cause. And you could do it earnestly, you might simply be wrong about what somebody intended when they when they tweeted something. But it also really opens the political arena up to manipulation because you take something out of context and you can spin it in all kinds of ways or adjust it uh, to, to make it seem much worse than it actually is to, to rally a particular base towards a particular end. And it's all because, I mean, ultimately, because you can, because you have the power to do that. And you often don't have to face any consequences for taking something terribly out of context. Once it's been ripped from context, there's no, I mean, I think this is a rather disgusting phrase, but you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube once that happens. And especially because people often latch on to particular memes or particular tweets or particular ideas because they already align with their beliefs. Whether or not the thing is actually true is kind of not important. Does it affirm my worldview? If it does, okay, great, now I'm gonna share it. And the more someone shares and shares and shares and shares, the, the more context we lose. And so that really has all kinds of implications, both interpersonally and politically, and just in our ability to kind of make sense of what is happening all around us when everything is just bits and pieces all over the place? It's it's very hard to sustain an argument. So in a way, the conclusion of all that is simply the argument just really gets messed up online. We don't know who is who. We don't know where things are coming from. We're not quite sure how to in interpret or understand the key terms people are using. Our words and phrases can be taken from us, cut up, used by others. Now, 
I think that's why a really important and huge part of rhetoric online is names. It might sound stupid or simplistic to say it. There is, of course, a lot of name calling online, but all sorts of slogans and labels are getting invented in the chans, in the comments boards, and they make it out into the world as, as memes, as slogans. Some of them get picked up and spread. And what they do is they help orient people in this confusing world of politics and ideology by giving a name to things. And they shape our ways of thinking about who's who and what's what and where things are coming from. So one example of that might be the acronym SJW, which uh, Becca Lewis was talking about in one of our earlier episodes. It stands for Social Justice Warrior, and it's used to define, in a dismissive way, people, particularly younger people, particularly women, who support progressive causes and post online about them. Uh, it's supposed to be sort of mockingly overblown, implying that these individuals have a very inflated sense of their own importance, that they see themselves as kind of waging a righteous war against prejudice when they're actually just posting. So Annie Kelly, a uh, researcher and broadcaster who's worked a lot on online anti-feminism and the gender politics of online spaces, uh, talked to us about this term social justice warrior and why it's been so effective for the right. Social justice warrior, I kind of think of as a word that came out from places, I think, like 4chan and these kind of uh, video gaming kind of communities, which I think slightly reflected a kind of younger uh, user base who I think kind of found the sort of you know saying that you're against feminism kind of sounds bad do you know um, it kind of puts you in the same camp as you know people who think women shouldn't have the right to vote whereas I think you know kind of using the term social justice warrior in a way um, made it seem as if this would, it was this kind of very specific sort of personality that you were locked in battle against and it kind of gave it a sort of uh, makeover in a way um, and I think I, I saw Social Justice Warrior kind of coming out of um, that push, that kind of sort of social media savvy kind of network that arose around that time. So that's a good example of a name, of how giving a name, a label to something can sort of bundle up a whole bunch of different things and make them pump part of a unified phenomenon, but then also use that single name to sort of stand for, in that metonymical way that Matthew Bourbon was talking about, a whole bunch of other kinds of things. But I also think it's worth thinking about the sort of political theory of that. That might seem like an odd thing to say, but from my point of view of political theory, the term social justice has an awful lot of kind of resonances. In the last episode, we talked about how part of what unites a lot of the right-wing forces online is hostility to equality. And the idea of social justice has been one that in political philosophy has been rejected by people who think that it's just not legitimate or possible for a state to try and make the world fairer, to make more people equal. And they see social justice as something that indicates government overreach, an attempt to change a natural phenomenon that can't be changed. So something from political theory leaps into the kind of world of the chans and spreads around the internet, giving this name social justice warrior to make it seem just irrational or meaningless to even think about politics trying to make the world more equal. So another one of these names or labels that's really important is the red pill, which is one we've mentioned before, but not quite explained it fully. It's pretty widely known now. It's kind of entered the discourse, uh, but it's worth thinking about in more detail. And Debbie Ging, who is an associate professor at Dublin City University researching online anti-feminism and misogyny, had a really good explanation of it for us. I think the red pill is really you know, it's, it's an extremely clever motive, a motif, I should say, because it, it's kind of a unifying philosophical concept. And, and we see it applied to alt-right pilling 
I think, as much as we see it now in, in the manosphere. And it, I suppose it offers quasi-cult-like, religious-like transformation potential. And if your life is, you know, kind of going nowhere, you feel it's going nowhere, anything that offers that kind of transformative potential is obviously quite interesting. It's also extremely visual as a concept. It comes from the matrix. You know, it's 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 just something that really kind of can can I think capture people's imaginations and also act as a kind of unifying philosophical idea. And so it also reinforces this notion, this cult-like notion of once you're red pilled, once you've swallowed the red pill, it's a, it's like an act of bravery, right? It's like an act of courage. So you've now made a decision that you are not going to live this complacent, deluded, normy life anymore. You've made a brave decision to um, to swallow the red pill, to have the scales fall from your eyes, and to see the um to see reality um for the first time for what it really is um you know which is a, a kind of a, a liberal feminist misandrist gynocentric conspiracy and so it has it has all that very kind of i guess seductive uh, appeal and then of course everyone else who's blue pilled remains deluded and, and kind of on the outside so I think that's just a really important part of, of the rhetoric that we're talking about. This idea of the red pill encapsulates what we've been saying, that people set themselves up as having possession of some kind of hidden secret knowledge that will be revealed to you if you listen to them, if you do what they say, if you join this special community. And this idea that there's hidden knowledge that you can gain access to also raises the idea that something or someone might be hiding this knowledge from you, that somebody might be keeping secrets from you. And as the conspiracy theory has it, that's the cultural Marxists. So this is a really interesting one for me, an interesting name that's doing kind of a lot of rhetorical, ideological work online. It's interesting to me partly because of where it comes from, but also because of how far it's reached thanks to the internet. It's now become so mainstream that it's used in Parliament. And that's extraordinary to me. We've been watching this for, for three years or so, move from the kind of bottom of the internet, as it were, on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. But it's not an innocent term. It shapes the way people think about what's going on, who's behind things. It affects the attitudes of football fans who are angry about their football team making anti-racist arguments to the people who are advising the prime minister. And the difficult question here, like with everything that circulates online, as we've been talking about, is, is where does it come from? What's its context? So from my point of view, it's a long story. It's one that predates the internet, right? There's a history to this kind of political thinking. The culture of American anti-communism in the 1950s, for example, that promoted the idea that there were reds under the bed, subversives, a fifth column, organised and consciously trying to bring down the American uh, government and American society. It's also linked, in more recently, to a very peculiar character in American politics called, called Lyndon LaRouche, a sort of cult political figure who moved through Marxism to an anti-Marxist, anti-Semitic, very definitely cult-like form of politics. But it was picked up from there by the paleoconservative Republican politician Pat Buchanan. And Pat Buchanan gave it a whole new lease of life online where it's just spread from there. I think we'd better go back to Matthew Feldman. Remember, of course... Even though it's a different context, Judeo-Bolshevism was a favored Nazi phrase. The critique of cultural Marxism was very specifically pointing to Frankfurt school guys, um, many of whom did have Jewish heritage. So I think that that was not an accident, for example, that people on the far right were saying that. But really what it needed were people who had 
kind of legitimate credentials in a way that Lyndon LaRouche perennial presidential want, want to be failure and crank um, could never be. But Paul, Paul Weyrich, the New America Foundation, was precisely that kind of rogue conservative. We see it with Roger Stone today in the U.S. context or Jerome Corsi, these kind of people who, who are kind of amoral and you know want anything that can gouge the eyes of their opponents. And cultural Marxism is a brilliant phrase because, again, Americans were very anti-Marxism then as now. And if you could find a way of saying, well, nobody's suggesting I mean, again, 2021 has already been quite a year, but up until this year, nobody is suggesting a Marxist takeover politically. They're taking over our institutions. And you can point to it here, 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 and here. And I think that that was something that really was taken up as a useful uh, rhetorical uh, weapon, dare I say. Um, and, and it has since, of course, with, with social media putting everything on sort of amphetamines, made that a, you know, a much more kind of a widely circulated meme that, as you say, now is, if not already mainstream, is very, very close to it. So in this confusing world of digital, but also non-digital politics, where it's not quite clear what our positions are, what left and right means anymore, who stands for what, where the words, images, themes and ideas that we see online are coming from, in that world, these names, these labels become really quite important in organising how we understand this world around us and giving us reference points. But they're not innocent names. They come with an awful lot of political kind of ideological baggage. And online you can connect these names to visual images uh, that make it even easier to recognise. So an example of this is during Gamergate, and it's taken on a broader life after this, there was this equation of uh, women with candy-coloured dyed hair, especially blue hair, becoming symbols of the social justice warrior, the sort of scolding, screeching feminist. So anybody with, with blue hair was an avatar of the SJW. And politics then becomes about learning to identify these people, what they look like, what their names are, giving things their proper names, and then people feel like they've got a handle on politics just because they can do that. And digital pop culture is also providing people with new metaphors, new terms, new vocabularies. Uh, so another acronym that's popular among reactionary online subcultures is NPC. And this comes from gaming culture, where it stands for non-player character. These computer-controlled drones who just follow their programming and are incapable of thinking for themselves. Uh, and this has become a term that you apply to your political opponents to make it seem like they're just spouting cliches uh, and are incapable of rational thought. We've covered so much ground here. And I'm sure there's a lot more to talk through, but can you summarise and tie this up for us? So one key thing to think about here is that platforms each induce their own kind of rhetoric that is particular to the, sp the specific platform. And that's changing the way people make their political arguments and try and convince each other. But it's, those platforms are also changing the way in which audiences encounter those political arguments and ideas and how they relate to political speakers and to each other. It's making charisma become really much more important in online political discussion. People who present themselves as having knowledge of secrets that will make you feel better, the context collapse of the internet, the way it's not quite clear where terms are coming from, what they mean, helps people establish that charisma. I'll explain what's going on. I can name and show your enemies to you. And then we get these, these terms, these images that uh, catch on, that um, bleed from one space into another, and that define a whole way of looking at the world and a whole politics in many cases. And these names link to another part of rhetoric, the appeal to the emotions. One of the odd things about the online world is that while we think of it as being virtual and disembodied, it's really anything but. 
It's all about our feelings and the emotions that course through our body when we're getting angry and clicking online. And we'll look at that next time on Reactionary Digital Politics. In this episode of Reactionary Digital Politics, you were listening to... Matthew Feldman. I'm Debbie Ging. My name's Annie Kelly. My name is Bharat Ganesh. I am Whitney Phillips. And thanks also to our students, Gareth, Dom, James, Lisa, Lauren, Max and Luke. You also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topinka. And me, Alan Finlayson. And me, Sophie Ludkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. And production of the podcast was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, by the University of East Anglia and by Birkbeck University London. Smash that like button.